Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the Bible. I thank you, Lord, that I don't have to have all these answers in my brain, but that, that this comes from, from Scripture and from what you teach us. Lord, help us to be wise and to be aware of those things as we study that are just surmise and um, they're just opinions. Help us to clearly separate those out from the things that stand as solid truth. There is so much truth in your word, and we want to be fed that truth and that knowledge and that understanding so that we can grow closer to you, Jesus, closer to each other, and so that we can really be useful to you in this world as long as we are here. Father, bless us in our study tonight. Bless our hearts and our minds, and open up your words to us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Six days of work, a seventh day of rest, and with that creation is completed mostly. Recognize there's nothing new since day six of creation, nothing new, nothing bara, created out of something created out of nothing, nothing like that has happened since day six of creation with one exception, and that's woman. But we'll get to woman in a few minutes. Things have been, as I said before, borrowed, but nothing has been barred. You know, species have, have changed within a species. Uh, new animals have been birthed. We all are here as, as new beings, but we are, we're not created out of nothing. We trace a lineage back. But on day six, that was the end of something out of nothing creation except for woman. Um, I mentioned the second law of thermodynamics. The world is wearing down. It is in a state of decay. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And this should be really encouraging for some of us tonight. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Man, if you're having a hard week, listen closely to these words. If life is tough for you, ever, this is a great place to go. Man, the sufferings that I have to go through in this life, the struggles that happen from time to time, the tragedies, they are not even worth comparing to the glory, Paul said, that is going to be revealed to us. Romans 8:19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So what he's saying is, if you happen to feel worn out, tired, Worn down. If your body is groaning, if your mind, if your spirit is just groaning with this, with this waiting, here's the good news. Our adoption papers are about to be signed. We are about to be completely adopted by the Father. Our tired old bodies are about to be redeemed. Now the question that kind of comes up when you look at day seven is, did creation wear out God? Did he, in all of the energy, the massive energy that must have been expended in those six days of creation, did that tire God out? Is that why he, gave, he had a day of rest? Well, flip in your Bibles to Psalm 
121. Keep your finger in Genesis 2 and go over to Psalm 121. Another incredibly encouraging set of scriptures. Psalm 121, the writer says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. The Lord never sleeps because the Lord always keeps. He never sleeps because he always keeps. He's keeping watch over you. He's keeping his hand on you. He knows what's happening in each one of our individual lives. Mind-boggling. I don't know what's happening just in the lives that represented in this room. I barely know what's happening in my life, much less anyone else's. But God keeps us. He knows what's going on. Intimately. He watches and he keeps his hand on us. I'll never forget one of, the, one of these warm uh, moments as a young parent. Back in 1995, I was doing a youth rally at a church that I was working at in Virginia. And uh, my son Hayden was, or no, not Hayden, Corey. Hayden wasn't born yet. Corey was home, and he was five years old at the time. And Cheryl was tucking him into bed. Now, I was going to be late at the church with this youth rally. I wasn't going to be home until like midnight. And this was 7 o'clock, and she's getting him tucked into bed. And little five-year-old Corey said, Mom, I want to stay awake until Daddy comes home. She said, well, he's going to be home really late. You'll probably be sound asleep by then. Well, tell him to come in and say goodnight to me. Well, you're probably going to be sound asleep. No, no, I'll know when Dad comes home. And she said, well, how will you know when Dad comes home? Because I'll feel his big, warm hand on my head. And, you know, Cheryl told me that. It was like, my big, warm hand? Because <laughs> every night when I came home after my kids were asleep, and I still do it with Hayden now, and with Corey and Hannah, I, you know, Corey's head is like really big now, but I still do it. I'll go in, and I, and I will put my hand on their head, and I'll pray for them. And, and Corey knew this, and I didn't know that he knew it. That was what was so touching to me, is I had no idea that he knew that I came into his room late at night after he was asleep. But it was the sense that he had that Dad's big, warm hand was going to be on his head. And I went back to the youth rally after hearing that the next day and I shared with all the students, that's what God does for us. His big warm hand is always on our head. He is always right there. He never sleeps. He doesn't rest. He doesn't slumber. Why? Because he's too busy keeping us and keeping an eye on us. Psalm 4, verse 8, tells us, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Man, when you know that God has a hand on you and has a handle on your life, what greater peace could you possibly have? But we pretty much rejected God's law when it comes to Sabbath rest. And it was a law. Specifically, it was a law that he gave to Israel. But at the, back, at the beginning of Scripture, remember, the law had not been given yet. So what we see happening in Genesis, any of the indications of God that come out of Genesis that are pre-Mosaic stuff, these things are important for our livelihood, and God is giving us an example in his own behavior on day 7, that rest is important. God has a health plan that he wants us to follow, but we've rejected that. He says, you know, at least one day in 7, stop working, desist, cease, relax, take a day off. 
God doesn't even say take an entire weekend or take three days. He just says take one. Just make sure in your busyness of your schedule you take at least one day and do nothing. Rest. Why? Because I did it and I set aside the, the day. I sanctified it as a day that was important because I know how human bodies tick. Remember me, the Creator? I know how you are made and I know what your bodies need and I know mentally, emotionally, spiritually you need a day off. You need to stop striving and rest and know and remember that I am God. We wonder why we get stressed out and frustrated and cranky. We live in the busiest time in history. We have, technology has made it possible for us to work 24-7. If our bodies could keep up. And many of us try to make our bodies keep up with technology. You know, it, it, it's amazing with, with just computers alone how much I can't stand. I'm on the internet right now, on cable internet. And it's not fast enough for me. It's just not fast enough. Now, I remember the first time I got on AOL dial-up, and this was like a decade ago, and I got on there, and it was like, you know, you see the little thing go, the bar going across, and boom, you're on the Internet. And I'm like, wow, that's fast. That would drive me nuts right now. Cable's not fast, but it's got to be faster. I don't have time to wait, you know. Well, we've been trained to that, and we have missed something in God's law. God did not rest because he was tired. He rested as an example to us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, he said, to keep it holy. And the word holy there, let's, let's get that word clear, set apart. Not a day that's just, ooh, it, it was a day to be set apart for rest. Remember it. Set it apart. Make sure you have that one day out of seven, that Sabbath rest. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, verse 11 of Exodus 20, and the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God gave us this great model to follow. Work. And work hard. Put yourself into your work. Throw yourself into your work. Enjoy your work, God would say. Work for things, especially, Paul says, that would last for eternity. Put that into your work and, and check it out. Work for things that have eternal value. As much as you can, as much as possible. But at least one day in seven, rest. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Isaiah writes, the Lord speaking, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. He goes on to say, but you would have none of it. You flee away. you got to run. you got to be on the move. And God says, when you're so on the move, how are you going to hear my voice? It's not a wonder that people ignore or don't find God in our culture today because we simply don't have time. We don't have time to stop long enough and listen to the voice of God. He says, in repentance and rest you will be saved. So what did man do? We worked hard at our rest. I love this. Some people made God's rest into hard work. The Pharisees had so many particular laws about the Sabbath that keeping the Sabbath was hard. You had to be careful not to step out of line on the Sabbath or you were busted. Keep that rest. Work hard at resting. That's very stressful. How is that a day of rest? And the Sabbath got completely lost among them. Dozens and dozens of difficult and intricate little rules for keeping the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus said to them, Hey, I added the hey, that was me. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So some people have taken God's command to rest and they've turned it into work. Other people have just completely found ways to ignore God's rest by squeezing as much into each day as possible 
which is why even Sundays now in our culture are not days that people take off. They're not days where people take a break. Nothing stops. Well, there's an answer to living in these last days of stress and turmoil. And the answer is found in the book of Hebrews, and you can say it in one sentence, enter into God's rest. And if you're stressed at all, take this moment to consider what, Paul, what the Hebrew writer said, and I, I believe it's Paul. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. He wrote, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, just like God did from his. Enter into God's rest. Well, how do I do that? Well, you begin by accepting the grace of Jesus. By realizing that in your spiritual life, it is not your hard work that saves you. It is not the energy or the effort that you put out as church people to do all these good things. That doesn't put you in a better place with God. Man, enter into his rest, that place of grace and peace. The Sabbath rest of God is much bigger than a day off or a vacation. To enter his rest, that place where Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, is to realize that you come to the Lord by grace and not by work. Which is why Jesus said, Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Now, this was brought up a moment ago. We're going to get into this. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 on through verse 25 presents a new problem for people. Because chapter 2 does seem different than chapter 1. You get all the way through chapter 1, six days of creation, the seventh day of rest, you get into chapter 2, and suddenly it's like backtracking, or something is different in the way that it's described. And it's gotten to the point where some have come up with different theories of chapter 1 and chapter 2 being literally different accounts altogether of creation. Now right off the bat, in verse 4, there's something different. It tells us this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. For the first time, now God is referred to as the Lord God. Okay? Now, that may not seem like such a big thing in our English translation, but understand this. We talked about last week that God is the word Elohim. Remember that, that God in the singular is El. In the, in the dual, two, or two would be um, Elah, and then Elohim is three or more. We talk about how God, you see the Trinity right there just in God's name. And in chapter 1, all the way through, he's Elohim, Elohim. Now, for the first time, as God begins to enter into relationship with man, he becomes Jehovah Elohim, or Yahweh Elohim. What's the difference? Yahweh is the I Am. You may recall in the story of Moses, Exodus chapter 3, that Moses was standing before the burning bush, or the bush that was not burning but was burning, and, and he was in the presence of God. And Moses was coming up with every excuse in the book for how he was not supposed to go back to Egypt and help the people out. And one of his excuses, one of his questions was, well, who, who am I going to tell them is sending me? I don't even know who to say you are. And God says, I am that I am. You go back and you tell them Yahweh sent you. I am. It's that present tense name of God that is so powerful. I am and then Elohim, God. So the Lord God, when you see the Lord God written out in Scripture, what it's saying is, I am God. Yahweh, Elohim, put together. Now, there are those who see this name difference as a problem. 
And so they'll say chapter 1 is the Elohistic account, and chapter 2 is the Jehovistic account of creation, because in chapter 1 all you see is Elohim, and in chapter 2 you, you see Jehovah. But they aren't two separate accounts, they are one and the same. I think there's a specific reason why you see the name change. And that reason is that now God is not only creator as he was in chapter 1, but God is now personal, as we will see him in chapter 2. He becomes intimately involved with man. Well, why is the name change important there? Listen to the name again. Jehovah, Yahweh. It's I am. Another way that it's said is I am present. I'm right here. I am with you. Now when God made the animals, did it matter so much to the animals if, if God was present? No, because they're not real aware of God. Did it matter to the plants? Did it matter to the planet itself that God was present? Well, only in that you know God keeps the whole thing going and, and holds it all together. But there's not the awareness. But man, when he created man, now suddenly he was creating someone in his image who was aware. Who would know if he was there or not. And so the name Yahweh comes into being. And, and folks, this name is incredibly personal. We know early on that uh, people knew God's name. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, Eve says, I, got, I have gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. Genesis chapter 4 verse 26, after Seth's birth, and we'll get there, uh, not tonight, but it tells us that men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. The present tense, God, who is right there. I'm God, I'm with you, I'm here now. You're not going to be alone, man, because I'm Yahweh. I'm not just Elohim, the great creator, but I'm Yahweh, the very present God. Which reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 20. Hey, until the end of the age, I'm with you. I will be with you always. Matthew 28, 20. Verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet, had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now what is this saying? The writer's giving further specifics about the pre-flood world. It's likely, as I said before, there was no such thing as rain until the flood happened, which would have made, by the way, Noah's flood warnings a little bizarre to his audience. Now, you may have heard this before or thought about this, but the fact that Noah was building a boat because the world was going to be flooded was weird, not only because they hadn't seen a flood, but because they hadn't even seen rain. What are you talking about? Water's going to come from the sky and flood the world. That's bizarre. Noah, you're nuts. You're off your rocker. And by the way, if God has told you something, if he's given you something that is in his will and, in his agree and, and it's in agreement with his word, don't let the naysayers get you down. If you know that you know that God has given you something, man, hang on to it. Because oftentimes, the rest of us have no idea that you had heard from God. And especially that's in accordance with His will and His word. You cling to that. If you stand by the word of the Lord, folks, you will stand firm. If you try to stand by and follow the words of, of man, you're going to be all over the chart. You're going to be everywhere. Because we change our minds constantly. We are very, you know, unstable beings. So stand on the word of the Lord. There's another interesting facet regarding the way things were grown here on earth at the beginning. Let me read this directly out of Matthew Henry's commentary. I think this is really well written. 
He wrote that the earth did not bring forth fruits of itself. Okay? It was done by almighty power. Now, if you go back and look at, uh, at verse 5, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain yet. When you look at that and go, well, what's, what's the point of that? What's he trying to say? He's saying that there was nothing in the earth that just happened to be there that sprouted up. God did it. God, by his almighty power. Matthew Henry goes on and says, in the same way, I love this, grace in the soul grows not of itself in nature's soil, but it is the work of God. Rain is also the gift of God. It came not till the Lord God caused it. And though God works by means, yet when he pleases, he can do his own work without means. He doesn't have to have the things that we need to make things happen. He can do with or without. He can create something out of nothing. Matthew Henry goes on and says, We must trust God. Some way or other, God will water the plants of his own planting. And so it is, by the way, with Fidalgo Community Church. God will grow his church. Whether by mist from the ground up or rain from the sky down, God will grow his church. Now, let me, if I may, get personal just for a second. I've had some people ask me about, about this new church that I'm starting over on Whitby. I've had some people raise concerns about my leaving FCC as if I'm that big a deal. Listen to me and hear me clearly on this. God grows his church. Not Ron, not Doug, not Rick, not any one of us. He uses us, but folks, we are means by which God does what he's going to do. We are not the power behind it. And this church, for any of you who have been a little nervous about Rick's leaving and what's going to happen, you know what? God is still God. He's still Father. And he planted FCC. And he is not going to turn his back from FCC. And I believe that he is not going to turn his back from me in, in the plant that, that he's got me going toward. Listen to the way Paul put it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Now, hear that clearly. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Now, if you have personally done something terrific to bless Fidalgo Community Church and its growth over the last few years, bravo, wonderful for you, but guess what? You're nothing. <laughs> and I love and appreciate all the service and hard work that's gone into this church. But you were just used by God. It's that simple. Paul ends up saying God is the one who causes the growth. Got that? We need to trust Him. And we need to understand the true way of things. God is the Master Gardener. And He will continue to grow His church because it's His church. And we need to trust Him on that. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now let me tell you, before I go on, what's happening here now in chapter 2 is, is the writer is getting specific. He gave us the, the overall picture of the six days of creation and the seventh day of God's rest. We see that. We get a couple of verses and we know that on day 6 man was created. We know that male and female were created in his image, but we don't know how. We don't know when all that exactly happened except that we know man was on day 6. We don't know when woman happened, or what that looked like, or how did God do it? Did, did he snap his finger? Did he twitch his nose? And what did he do that brought man, something out of nothing, into being? Well, now the writer is going to tell us. And it's beautiful. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living being. The master planter, the master gardener, now becomes a master sculptor. And he molds, picture this, he takes the dust of the ground and he begins to mold man. And he gets this finished product. And by the way, we are made up, our bodies are made up of some 15 or 16 elements that are all in the ground. Which is why when somebody dies, you know, ultimately we decay and just go back into the elements of the ground. Now it takes longer for Americans because we eat Twinkies, but it still happens eventually. Preservatives or not, we are made of the same properties, our physical bodies, as the dust. And it's interesting too that Adam, the word Adam in the Hebrew means man, but the word for ground is Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H. So we, we have our, our being from the ground. God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And this is very important to keep in mind as we walk along this journey, that we come from dust, that we are frail and fragile creatures. Why is it so important to know that? Because when I know that I come from dust and will return there, it keeps me grounded. Sorry for the pun. But it does. When I realize I'm a frail creature on this earth, I think less highly of myself than when I begin to elevate myself and my mind and my emotions and my abilities and think that I'm such a grand and glorious creature. I'm dust, man. That's where I'm headed. That's what I'm made for. And that keeps me grounded. I love the, the, the conversation that Abraham had with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. And God told Abraham, I've purposed in my mind to destroy these two cities. I want to let you know because I know Lot's down there. And I'm going to send some angels down there to pull him out. But you need to know I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham starts going, oh man, Lord. You know, like, like a good Hebrew, he starts to barter. And he says, how about 50, what if there are 50 good people there? Will you destroy 50 good people, 50 righteous men? And God says, no. I'm like, I, I, okay, for 50 I won't do it. And you know the story, he, he goes down bit by bit and bit, bit by bit. Well, in Genesis 18:27, interesting, Abraham is, is get, gets the Lord down to 45, and, and he, he's, he's treading very carefully. Because Abraham realizes, I'm talking to the Lord Creator who's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and I really want to stay on his good side. So Abraham says this, Now behold, I've ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. And that's the right attitude with which to approach God. Lord, I am I'm dust and ashes. I'm not a big deal. I know I'm not a big deal. I know I'm frail. That was Abraham's approach. By the way, the Lord remembers that we are dust too. And that's an awful pleasant thought. To know that as frail as I am, God knows I'm frail. Psalm 103.13, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a, and if they're like my grass, it's not good. The front yard at home. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. But when the wind is passed over it, it's no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. Now, consider this. We share some of the same elements, many of the same elements of the, of the ground, along with the other animals. And on a broader scale, one of the arguments of evolutionists is that is in our similarities with other creatures. Now look at the ape and you know, the, the hands and, and look at the, way, you know, the, the brain of a dolphin and, and that there are similarities between the created creatures and man. And there's another problem. Genesis chapter 1 tells us God created man out of nothing and we get to chapter 2 and we see, no, wait a minute. 
I mean, it was created out of dust. I thought it was made something out of nothing, bara. This is a contradiction here. What's going on? Look at verse 7 one more time. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Get this picture. God begins to sculpt this body, Adam's vehicle for life. And when he finished, there must have been a pause there because we're told that then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Before God breathed the breath of life into Adam, Adam was still just a version of dust. He was a body. He was a sculpture standing there, but lifeless. There was no life in him until God breathed in him the breath of life. What was the breath of life? I put to you that it was bara, something from nothing, that it was the soul that it was the spirit of man that God called completely out of nothingness and threw into this physical body. And it happens every time a child is born. I think it happens before that. Every time a child is conceived, God breathes the life, the soul, into that child, into that being. We need to understand that we are dust because we also are simply in vehicles. These bodies of ours are not eternal. It's the soul that is true, that is right, that is, that is eternal. The true creation of man is not in the physical body. It's in the breath of God. Now, there are a couple of Hebrew words in, in the Old Testament. Neshama, which means soul and spirit. That's the word that's used here. But there's also the word ruach, which means wind or spirit. And what's happening in verse 7 is God is calling something out of nothing. The soul, the very nature, the true being of man. And putting it into this physical carrying case. This physical body, this earth suit. I like calling it an earth suit because that's exactly what it is. So God formed this earth suit, something out of something, and then he filled the earth suit with a human soul, something out of nothing. And we're about about to now get a sneak peek into the making of woman. It's pretty cool. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And again, east, east of what? Well, I assume east of where he made Adam. So some, somewhere to the east, he made Eden. And it tells us, where are we? Uh, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Understand that man was not created in Eden. Man was created outside of Eden. God then made Eden and put man into Eden. That's important. It's an important difference between men and women, I believe. It goes on to say in verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow. Again, we have that phrase, the Lord caused to grow. Not something sprung up, but the Lord did it. It is still all completely under his control. The Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. So if you can find Havilah, please let me know. Verse 12. The gold of that land is good, and the, and the Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. Verse 13. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now we know about the Tigris and Euphrates. And we see those, in fact, it's so interesting to me that with all that's happened in Iraq that we suddenly have become geographically aware 
As Americans, we're not the most geographically aware people in the world. You know, we tend to not really know the rest of the world, we're, you know, the states. And if, if I can count, you know, half of the 50 states, I'm doing good. But we, because of the Iraq War, have seen so much over there. And you see the Tigris and the Euphrates still flowing. We don't see the other two, the Pishan and the Gihon. And why not, I don't know, the flood maybe? Um, caused some changes, some topographical changes. But it's thought that those four rivers created the boundaries of Eden. That the Tigris and the Euphrates were two boundaries, but that the, the Gihon and the Pishon were like tributaries that connected the Tigris and the Euphrates. And it was in between these four rivers that Eden existed. Now God made Eden, listen to this, for man to enjoy. He didn't just make Eden as an afterthought or it wasn't just kind of there as part of creation. He created the world, the six days, but on that day six, one of the things he did specifically was create Eden for man to enjoy. The word Eden literally means pleasure or delight. God is not a killjoy. God is not anti-pleasure. He's not anti-delight. He loves for his children to be delighted, to enjoy the things of life. In fact, you could put it this way, God takes delight in the delight of his children. Psalm 37 verse 4 tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and trust in him, and he'll do it. And so he puts man into this garden, surrounded by these boundaries for Eden. These four rivers are boundaries. And then God sets up another boundary. He puts a tree in the garden. And he gives man his first real moral boundary. Adam, you have every tree of the entire garden to eat from. Everything. Including, by the way, the tree of life. You just keep eating off that tree all you want, Adam, and you will just live forever, and we're going to have a great relationship, you and I walking in the garden. You do that. You can eat of anything in the garden. There's one tree I've got to warn you about. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'd really rather you not eat from that tree. You know, we need boundaries. All of us do. We don't do real well on our own outside of the fences. And we see this, you know, parents see this with their children real early on, that our children start to get uncomfortable and freak out if they don't know what the boundaries are. They don't know what the rules are. And, and, and by the end of the summer, my kids are off the charts. They're just ballistic. We get back into school, get the boundaries, get the schedule back, and everything starts to hum along again. You know? It happens every year. We need boundaries. Verse 15. It tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So Adam had a job. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For Adam, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God puts man in the, in the garden. Hires him on as a caretaker. Remember, God's the master gardener, but he hires man in. He says, okay, now I want you to cultivate and keep the garden. It's wonderful he gives us something to do. He gave Adam something to do. Adam didn't just go sit by the river and... It's a nice day. The water. They got another piece of fruit. <laughs> it wasn't boring. He had a job. He had something to do. And by the way, heaven will be the same way. We have jobs, things that we get to do in heaven. Wonderful things. The Bible talks about that. Well, Adam had it good. He had it perfect. I imagine Adam sitting by the river, as a matter of fact, after a day of cultivating, and just thinking, man, can it get any better than this? What a wonderful place I am. 
And he had good eating in the garden, including, as I said before, the tree of life. But God says, this one tree. Don't eat from this tree. From the day you eat from this tree, Adam, you're going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but this may seem a little harsh. Kind of a tough requirement for man to be put in this beautiful garden and have every kind of fruit, every kind of vegetable, anything he wanted to eat, all available at the touch of a finger, and one tree he wasn't supposed to eat. Now, that's kind of stringent. One tree. I mean, really, think about it. How hard is that? Just don't eat out of this cookie jar. All the others. You can have all the cookies you want, but just not this one. But what does man do? Well, in chapter 3, we'll see. He goes right for the cookie jar. The one. The only one. It wasn't like he didn't have any other choices. But that's what happens with sin in our lives. But I'm going to get ahead of myself. It's interesting to me that God doesn't say, if you eat this tree, I'll kill you. That's not God's tone here. Adam, I'm telling you, young man, if you touch the tree, not only will I spank you, but I'm going to knock you into next week. I'm going to kill you. He doesn't say that. He puts the tree there. And I... Can you imagine God's heart when he planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Can you imagine how hard a choice that was for God? To put that tree there knowing what man was going to do. Knowing that if he gave us the choice to do it, we would take it. But he put it there anyway. And as a loving father, he put it there for a reason. And he stepped back and he said, I at least have got to warn him. Don't eat of the tree, Adam. If you eat of the tree, you're going to die. Now, some have suggested that there was something carcinogenic in the fruit. Something that literally started when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that started the death process in their bodies. I don't know about that, but I do know that in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, they died. And you might go, wait a minute. The Bible says that Adam lived to a ripe old age of 939 years. And we see that later on in Genesis chapter 5. 939 years. So apparently, he didn't die on that day. He lived a long time. Was God wrong? I don't think so. I submit to you that there are two, two deaths that we need to be aware of in Scripture. One is a physical creation and a physical death. To, from dust to dust. Created out of dust, going back to dust. And that is where our bodies are headed. However... There is also spiritual creation, the breath of God. And there is spiritual death. And in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died spiritually. Now, don't, don't look at that as, oh, okay, so they died spiritually. Well, they're still alive. No, no. The greatest tragedy in all of history happened on that day when man died from God. When the close intimate association between God and man was ripped apart by a death, a spiritual death. In that day, fellowship with God was cut off. No more walks in the garden in the cool of the day. No more immediate conversation, no more connection to the Father, the Creator, no more immediate experience of the very presence of God. And today, folks, even in our world today as we live, people cry out, Why can't I hear God? Because sin destroys that relationship. We will again hear God. But that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, Man, our bodies are groaning. 
spiritually. We are groaning for that day when we can experience completely our adoption as sons. Hey, you're adopted, by the way. You give your life to Jesus. You're in the family. You're adopted. You're part of the deal. But you haven't fully experienced it yet. We love the sound of God's warm hand on our heads. I haven't actually completely felt it yet. Oh, I felt peace and security in knowing that God is God. But man, that intimacy I long for with my dad, with my father, I want to be with him again. And that is promised and that is coming. But that was destroyed in that day when Adam died spiritually. Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness and the offense of Adam. That's important. It wasn't just eating from that tree. There's plenty of other ways people die spiritually. We have all experienced those ways. I may not have sinned in the same way as Adam, but folks, I have sinned. And by so doing, I have died spiritually from God as well. But Paul goes on to say, Romans 5.14, Even those who have not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. For if by the transgression or sin of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the new Adam, through the one, Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the second Adam. Because he's the one that though Adam brought death into the world, Jesus brings back life and adoption and connection. Folks, the heart of God is not about crushing rebellion or condemnation or cursing the failures of man. God's heart has always been a heart of love and grace. But he stood there in the garden with Adam and pointed out the tree in a heart of love and grace and said, Don't eat it. Because if you do, it's going to mess everything up. Don't eat it. Please, Adam. Don't make that choice. See, that's love. It wouldn't be love if God had stuck the tree in the garden and stepped back and gone, see how he does with that. Now, he warned him like a loving father would. Well, Numbers 32, 23, we've quoted in here before, be sure your sin will find you out. It will be discovered. There is nothing we can do in the secrets of our own closets that doesn't ultimately come out, that isn't ultimately discovered. And you may even ask, well, then why did God plant the tree in the garden in the first place? Why even put it there? Sure, it was loving to warn Adam, but why put it there at all? Because God desires a love relationship with man. And the truth is, and you all know this, love is not love without a choice. It's not true love. If God had not given Adam and Eve the choice, if God had not given each one of us the choice to follow him or not, how would he ever know, how would we ever know that we're truly in a love relationship with the Father? If I am a robot, how do I know that I love? And so God gave choice. Think about Cheryl and our prom and the fact that she chose me. That was cool. I'll never forget the phone conversation, calling her up and going, yeah, I was just wondering, you know. And it's funny because guys, when they, when they ask girls out on dates, we get mealy mouth, you know, we can't really speak and everything. You can be totally cool, but the moment you actually go to ask for the date, that's when you lose it. Yeah, sure, I had uh, doing good. I played on the basketball team today, and you know, had a great, uh, great game. Yeah, I just, you know, scored a, a 25, 30 points. Um, yeah, captain of the team, right, right. Yeah, he's wondering if he might like to go out with me and some guy. You know, you just don't lose it. So I asked her, I go, Hey, do you want? What do you think about maybe going to the prom together? And she, she shocked me. She said, Sure, that'd be great. And I, and I was like, Really? Oh, I said, Really? She's gonna know that you don't think. She, 
you know, she chose me. And she chose another guy to go with his prom a week later, and I was really bummed. <laughs> but ultimately, she chose me. She didn't have to marry me. I'll tell you what, I know she loves me, because she chose me. And I know the day that she made that choice, she said yes to me. And I remember looking in the mirror going, you are one lucky guy, you dog. You die. <laughs> she chose me, and I know that she loves me. Folks, God chose to give us choice. He didn't force us, himself on us. That's called rape. And God didn't do that. God did not force us to be in a love relationship, a lust relationship with him. He chose us, and he gave us the choice of him. Don't ever forget, by the way, the next choice that God made. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why was the tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil? A couple of reasons, I think. Number one, by eating it, man outwardly declared rebellion. By just taking a bite of the fruit, Adam and Eve said, I choose to do what you told me not to do. And with that move, Immediately, there's knowledge of good and evil because they chose wrong. But secondly, by eating of the tree, man became, and don't miss this tonight, this is probably the most important thing I'll say. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they became morally independent. What's wrong with that? It removed their dependency on the Father. You see, before man ate of the tree, he had to ask God everything because he didn't know. He didn't know what was right and wrong and, and what was good and bad. And, and what, so it was constantly, Father, is this okay? Father, can we do that? Hey, Father, what about this? Father, I need to know about that. Constant communion and relationship with the Father who did know all things from the dependent who knew nothing except that he was naked in a garden. That's cool. Father, what do I do with this? But in that day, the, he became, Adam, morally and Eve, morally independent. We can reason this for ourselves. We don't need to ask the Lord anymore. And from that day on, man has fought with his independence and has fought the idea of dependence on the Father. But before that, what a beautiful relationship Adam had with God. A totally dependent relationship. Now you may say, you know, dependency doesn't sound like a very free relationship. You haven't spent any time around my children. Hayden is completely dependent on me for meals, for clothing, for a place to lay his head at night, for safety, for security, for protection. He when he's heading out into the street and cars are coming, he doesn't think about if he's going to get hit or not. I think about if he's going to get hit. I'm the one shouting out, Hayden, stop! You know, and he's just free as can be doing his thing. That's what children are like. They are totally free, but they're totally dependent. And in a, in a healthy family situation, that's great. Kids can be kids. They can relax in their freedom. I, I put to you that there is total freedom in absolute dependency. Well, not dysfunctionally and not in a weird, you know, human sort of way. But the more dependent I am on God, the more free I am. The more relaxed I am. The less stressed I am about what's going to happen with my life. God knows what's going to happen. The Father knows how to get me from here to there. God knows if there's a car coming down the street and he'll stop me in time because I depend on him. And folks, God invites us back to dependency. 
Be careful with knowledge. Because herein lies the danger of knowing good and evil. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge makes us arrogant, but love edifies. I like the King James version of it. Knowledge puffs up. That's what knowledge does. So be careful, because if you're even into the Word of God, if you're just into it for knowledge, it's just going to puff you up. Don't get puffed up. Don't get all arrogant on the things that you're learning. Well, I learned about tohu bohu today, and I know that you don't know what that means, little people. Let me explain it to you. Knowledge puffs up. But you know what? If you're into the Word because you're trying to develop that dependency that God is inviting you to, you're into the Word for the right reason. Get dependent on the Father. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, and this is just great, I've been freed from sin, and Paul says, and you became slaves again. What? Yeah, slaves of righteousness. I am a slave. I'm a slave, folks. I am completely dependent on Jesus Christ for everything in my life. And that kind of slavery, bring it on. Because you can't be free outside of that kind of dependency on God. Aren't we supposed to be free in Christ? Right. But again, who experiences the greater freedom? George W. Bush or Hayden? Who do you think right now has less worries, less concerns, and who really is free? Hayden is. Absolutely. George Bush can't even get in a car without Secret Service all around him. He has the President of the United States, whoever that man is, gives up probably as the least free person in the country outside of prisoners. And he's given up that freedom. But children, dependency. Dependency is a good thing when it's on the Father. Before they ate of the fruit, Adam and Eve were totally dependent on God for knowledge and understanding. So, look at it this way. Dependency on the Father. That's your reason for Bible study. Dependency on the Father, not independence from the Father. Intimacy with the Father, not information about the Father. Now, earlier I said that nothing new was made after day six, with one exception, woman. Now, you may wonder, well, wait a minute, wasn't woman made on day six along with man? And I don't think so. Again, chapter one gives us the overview. Chapter two gets specific. And let's read on now. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Man, by the way, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but just man, it's interesting, was made outside of the garden. Woman was made in the garden. That alone probably testifies to a lot of our differences as males and females. Man out in the wild, you know, where it was rough. And he was stuck in the garden to tend it, but woman was made in the garden where it was beautiful and safe. And I'm not going to say anything more because I'll get in trouble. Furthermore, before a woman was made, God gave Adam a front row seat and an incredible parade. Look at verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Can you imagine Adam naming the creatures? How fun that must have been. Just to sit there as they paraded by him, one after another, these bizarre, funky, unique things, creatures he had never seen before. 
And we can open up encyclopedias and see animals and stuff. Now, he had never seen them. Along comes this bizarre thing with these things hanging down and this and cow. It looks like a cow. Mule. That looks like a mule. Stunk. Duck-billed platypus. Naming the creatures, how much fun that would have been. Now, we don't know the specific names of the creatures that Adam gave them. We have our names now in our language, and I don't know exactly what Adam called all the creatures, but he named every one. And the interesting thing is God had a purpose for the naming process. He wanted Adam to see something. You're all alone. Oh, yeah, there are some fuzzy dogs that are, you know, with your face and kind of fun to play with, you know, throw a stick, but, but you're all alone, Adam. God was intentional in marching the animals in front, in front of Adam because finally after he named them all and saw them all, and this, by the way, is one of the reasons I believe Eve was created after day six because how much time did it take to march the animals in front of Adam? This is not allegory, folks. This happened. He sat there and he watched them go by one after the other. It could have been weeks before woman was made. But God wanted man to understand something. There is not a creature in all of creation that is made to be with you. You are alone. And when Adam understand this, he was ready or understood it, he was ready for the best gift of all. Verse 21. So, the Lord God, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, something interesting. The word rib is misleading. It's not rib. There's another Hebrew word for rib. But literally, and it's a big shock to all of us, after all this time of imagining God popping a rib out of Adam and even raising the question, well, does that mean that men have one less rib than women? Not stupid. You know, if someone came and took a rib out of me, it doesn't mean that my son Corey is going to be one less rib. You know, one rib short of a full chest cavity. And you can use that, you know. That guy's one rib short of it. Anyway, so Adam didn't just have a rib popped out. The word here indicates something broader. God took from his side. God pulled out of his side. I, I would put to you that God opened up man and took some of his heart. Because honestly, who has the passion or the compassion? Who has the sensitivity now, I'm not saying that men are insensitive oafs, okay? But I'll tell you what. My wife sees and understands the world very differently from me. And if it weren't for her, I would be constantly in trouble with other women, okay? If I didn't learn to see things with her eyes. God took a part of Adam. Without that part, Adam would find himself incomplete. God made man for woman and woman for man the two to be together God fashioned a woman this is a stunning and beautiful beautiful thing that happens here and folks we have walked away from it we've walked away from what God did listen we're going to look at the curse in chapter 3 that fell on Adam and Eve but I want you to understand this that from the beginning God's ideal for man and woman was one man with one woman for life. That's his plan. That's his ideal. 
Now I happen to know in this room alone that we haven't all held to that plan. That tragedies have happened and, and difficulties have happened in marriages. And I know that there's been brokenness even here among us. And I don't want you to go away going, man, I feel so bad. No, don't, because that's, that's not the heart of God. But the heart of God is this. He does have an ideal. And the ideal is to have man and woman together, connected. Back the way they're supposed to be. Listen to Adam's heart. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's not like the cow or the skunk or the mule or the duck-billed platypus. This is one like me. Holy better. <laughs> he says, She will be called woman, Esha. She shall be called Esha because she was taken out of man, Ish. Ish and Esha. The intimacy, the connection, is amazing. By the way, if it bothers any woman, any women that you were taken out of man, or if any man takes pride in the fact that he came first, listen to Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 11. In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Oh, we're back to dependency again. God wants us to depend on each other, male and female, because that's how he created us. 1 Corinthians 11.12, Paul says, this is just so cool. As the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. Isn't that great? I came from a woman, my mom. And throw it all the way back, and a woman came from a man, Adam. We can't argue over who came first, the male or the female. It doesn't matter. Because in Jesus... We're all together. The woman originates from the man. The man has his birth through the woman. And Paul says, and all things originate from God. Now, he's, he's the real source of where we came from. Now, the point of the Genesis account is not who came first. It's where we came from. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. How fun is that? Two people. In this gorgeous garden paradise, running around naked, having a great time and not even thinking twice about it. And that, I put to you, is the model of an ideal marriage. That the man and the woman who are so intimately connected, they're not ashamed. And we're not just talking about physical nakedness here. It's much more than that. Adam and Eve had nothing to be ashamed of each other. Complete trust. Total dependency. A perfect place in which to live. This is not a picture of two individuals who were stu too stupid to realize they were running around naked. It wasn't like, you know, even, we get this picture in our minds that they ate the fruit, and the moment they bit into the fruit, suddenly it was like, bing, <gasps> you know, and I got to cover up. That wasn't the deal. They knew they were naked. They knew it, and they weren't ashamed, because it was beautiful, it was perfect, it was the way God intended Children know they're naked and they don't care. I mention my children a lot. Hayden has no problem running naked through the house in front of anybody. Come on over some night at bath time. He'll come downstairs. Yeah, where's my towel dripping wet and everything? It's like, son, you're naked. Yeah? I know. It's not a shame. He has nothing to be ashamed. Now, I'm not a nudist. Don't get me wrong. Not going there. Trust me, I don't want to see other people naked. It scares me. But there is no shame in a right relationship. In a healthy, godly relationship, male and female, there is no shame. 
God intended one man for one woman for one life. Well, how can you say that this is God's plan? Well, I didn't. Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they were testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Did I get a divorce? They were in it to question. They were going to trick him. Oh, that's another trick. How's he going to answer this? And Jesus said, Well, haven't you read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two. They're one flesh. And whatever therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Oh, the Pharisees. They were on this. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Ha! We got you. Mosaic law. And Jesus said, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Guys, that's not the plan. That's not what God wants. Jesus said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is predating Moses' law. He goes all the way back to the beginning, back to original design, back to God's divine ideal for people. Listen, God's ideal for man was life mates in paradise. That's what he created us for. That's what he wants. Now some of you are sitting here going, okay, but I messed up. But that's not, that's not where my life is right now. That I may have been in that type of situation, but it wasn't ideal. Folks, I don't want to take a hands-up survey, and I'm trying to be sensitive, but I want you to, to realize that there's not a divorced person on the face of the earth that enjoyed it. You know that. If you've been through it especially, nobody says, I'll tell you what, I had this marriage going on and we got a divorce and the divorce was great. It was fun. Boy, I'll tell you what, it's exactly what I was hoping for. No little girl grows up hoping to go through divorce. And for those of you who have been through it, you know better than I how painful it is, how hard it is, and how consequence for any decisions we make follow us. And please, please don't hear me saying anything judgmental about where you're at in your life. The beautiful thing is that we've all sinned. We have all messed up. None of our lives are perfect. Yeah, I have a healthy marriage, but i got a closet full of other stuff we could talk about. Don't really want to, thank you very much. But we could. I didn't eat the apple like Adam. He did that sin. But I have plenty of my own. I may not be a divorced man but I have plenty of sin on my own. So just so you know that we're not talking about who's better in the room. But God sets up ideals for us and He wants us to have the best. And when we don't have it, it not only hurts God, but it hurts us. But listen to this. Now, only through another tragedy in another garden can we get back to God's ideal. This is the good news. God's ideal for man and woman began with a garden. And man and woman failed and found themselves ashamed until Jesus was crucified and buried in another garden. A garden called Golgotha. 
John chapter 19, verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Did you know that at the site of the crucifixion there was a garden there? It happened in a garden? I think that's stunning. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Golgotha, Man had to wait in, in distress and turmoil. How will we ever get reconnected to the Father? And at the Garden of Golgotha, Jesus died. And Jesus was buried. And Jesus resurrected. And an amazing thing happened. Listen to this. At the resurrection, you may recall that, that Mary got down to the tomb and found that Jesus was gone. And she began to weep, looking for her master. And Jesus came to her in disguise. And what was he disguised as? A gardener. A gardener. The first thing that Mary saw in Jesus was a gardener. I think that's awesome. God created the garden. What a beautiful picture. She didn't think that he was anything else. He could have been a baker or a candlestick maker. But no, he was a gardener. An apt description of the one who most desires to place us back in a garden of perfection and he will by the way one day and he's going to put us in a garden that has the same beautiful tree that once graced Eden Revelation 22 verse 1 he showed me a river the water of life clear as crystal coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the middle of its street on either side of the river was there it is again the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. God wants to draw us back to a garden where we can be in fellowship with Him again. And whatever sins have corrupted our lives, each and every one of us, God will wash them away. He will make us clean so that we again can be in the garden with him and not be ashamed. And that's good news.